Please turn with me to Luke chapter 4, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 13 as we begin, uh, we continue our, our journey through uh, this great gospel. This morning's title is Defeating Temptation. And our key words are tempted, Satan, and obedience for our worshipers in training. Now, before we get into Luke this morning, I want to begin by talking about Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and really a picture of what's going on in Genesis before we get there. Genesis 3.15 is what we call the Proto-Evangelium. That means the first gospel, the first announcement of the gospel from God in the scriptures. God's purpose for Adam, we read in Genesis 1.26, was to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That was the command that God gave to Adam. And then in chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses Adam and Eve and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam had a task. He was given a mission that God required of him to complete. God's intention was for Adam to complete worldwide dominion. That he would continue to move beyond the garden and eventually that all of the earth would be filled with the goodness of the garden. Adam was in a perfect environment. He was innocent. He was without sin. He was undefiled in a perfect world. And while he had the capacity to sin, he had not yet done so. He was commanded by God to take dominion, to subdue all that is in the earth, to include dutifully keeping evil influences from invading the sanctuary. That's not what happened, is it? Adam failed to subdue and take dominion over all creation. He failed to assert his reign over what the Bible calls the most crafty of any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made in Genesis 3, 1. And as a result, all of creation fell into destruction and depravity, sustained only by the common grace of God, who, although he doesn't owe it to his creation, decided to mercifully extend the existence of what he had created. And yet, because of his holiness, because of his perfection, he did not do this without also pronouncing a curse. Remember, God curses Adam. He curses Eve. He curses the serpent. And he curses the posterity of man, the very ground upon which man would walk. To state it simply, Adam failed at his mission. And we have inherited the consequences. And yet here too is where we identify this great reality that God is not a miser. God is not a brute or a barbarian. 
God is just. God rightly punishes lawlessness, but God is likewise full of love and compassion in order to make known the riches of his glory to the praise of his glorious grace. It is in Genesis 3.15 that we see God's great plan of redemption revealed. As soon as all of the curses are laid out, God mercifully announces that he will reconcile all things back onto himself in the second Adam. Adam was assaulted with temptation and he fell. He and his wife, all of humanity, into condemnation because of one sin. But then we read, as God is cursing Satan, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The head of Satan will be crushed. The heel of Jesus will be bruised. He will die, but he will be raised from the dead. And so the question we have to ask in all of this, is Jesus like Adam? Is this another Adam who would begin his life in complete innocence, have a flawless start, and yet be unable to sustain in the battle with the enemy. If Genesis 3.15 is true, we cannot have a new Adam who is as susceptible to the sins of the first Adam. We cannot have a new Adam who is unable to subdue the serpent. We must have an Adam who can conquer sin and death and Satan and hell. I remember at Jesus' baptism, his ministry was inaugurated by the voice of the Father from heaven. He announced that he was well pleased with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Last week we looked at the great pains Luke went to to show us the Davidic credentials of Jesus. A son of David, a son of Abraham, a son of Adam, a son of God. Luke identified the absolute humanity of Jesus and concluded by pointing to his divinity. And so now we arrive at the first of Jesus' tasks as the Messiah, as the second Adam, as the one who would fulfill this great and glorious promise of God in Genesis 3.15. Let's read in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan... And was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So Luke indicates that immediately following Jesus' baptism, he left the Jordan River and went straight into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit. We saw that in chapter 3 and verse 22. And is now full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit. So for 30 years, Jesus has proven his faithfulness to the Father. He had met all the credentials to be the Messiah, and now we're encountering the reality of what it is to be the Son of God. And he faces off with Satan in the wilderness. 
he went out there to meet our ancient foe and to undo what has been done by the first Adam. If you will ever see the kingdom of God, it will be in part because of what Christ accomplished in the wilderness where these two kingdoms come and approach each other. As these two kingdoms examine one another and attack. It is because of what Christ accomplished in the wilderness that we, brothers and sisters, are made alive. Now notice the events that Luke lays out in verse 2. Jesus enters the wilderness. He is there for 40 days being tempted by the devil. 40 days in combat with the enemy, defending himself in the power of the Holy Spirit against the evil blows of self-pity and loneliness and fear and the pain of his fasting and the awful temptation to bicker and complain against God, just like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Jesus is, is there. His temptation is real. He eats nothing. He is fasting. And at the end of the 40 days, Luke writes... He is, big surprise, he's hungry. Now remember, little statements like this are really important to Luke. They point out these little nuances of Jesus in his humanity. And this is really important. We've talked about this several times throughout the Gospel of Luke, but we really have to grasp this reality that Jesus was human in every way. I think a lot of Christians assume that Jesus was human in his physical appearance and he submitted himself to the physical difficulties of being human in a broken world, but assume that in his mind and in his heart, Jesus was nothing like us in our humanity. We have to reject that idea. It's an ancient heresy called docetism. In other words, it's, it's the idea that Jesus only appeared to be human but was not actually human. It's not what we see in the Scriptures. And Luke again and again and again points this out. Jesus was completely and totally human. Jesus was also completely and totally divine. The writer of Hebrews wrote that Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So Christ's humanity wasn't some show, it was actual, it was real. And the only difference between Jesus and his humanity in you and yours is that he did not sin. Philippians 2 points to the fact that Jesus, when he subjected himself to humanity, he placed the use of his divine knowledge and his power under the discretion of God the Father. In other words, he became aware of his divinity and his power as the Father willed it to be. He did not just walk around with this knowledge of always uh, knowing that he was the divine Son of God. This is exactly what Jesus is referring to in John five nineteen. He said, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And this is what makes Jesus' temptation so significant for us. 
Jesus now knows fully that he is the son of God. The father has revealed it to him at his baptism. And now as a real man, without sinning, he's in the wilderness to do that which Adam did not. He was there to defeat and subdue the evil one. Real temptation, real hunger, real suffering. And again, the writer of Hebrews tells us, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you see right up front, we are, we are flooded with encouragement in what Jesus has done. Not only will he prove to be the greater Adam, the second Adam who would accomplish that which the first could not, but he will do it so that he can help us. He can identify with us. And all of this is a really big deal because if Jesus failed to stand against the temptation of Satan, as our first parents did, this whole thing would be over. If Jesus took one single step to bow towards Satan, all of us would be done. God would be thwarted. Now you and I are keenly aware of our inability to live up to what God has commanded of us. So were it not for Jesus' obedience on our behalf, his active obedience for us, we would have no hope. So we see Jesus in the wilderness and he fasts. He's relying completely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Holy Spirit. And in his fasting, he relies upon God himself. And he does this for 40 days, which is an obvious parallel with the 40 years which the Israelites were in the wilderness. 40 years in which, unlike Jesus, they were continual. Complete and total failures, right? They were rarely obedient to God. They were most often bickering and complaining, never satisfied, always wanting more and more and more from God. But Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the fullness of all that they were not. Jesus is the fullness of all that we are not. And we will see the significance of this comparison here with the Israelites as we see how Jesus responds to the devil. Let's look at what happens next. Verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what's obvious from this passage is that Satan knows exactly who Jesus is, right? He is responding to the Father's pronouncement at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so the devil responds, if you are the son of God, prove it. Now, at the culmination of Jesus' fast, 40 days of hunger, the devil shows up. And it's just like him to show up when circumstances are difficult, isn't it? Weak, tired, hungry, when we're not at our sharpest, when we're not most prepared to reject temptation, he places it right before us. And imagine the temptation for Jesus. 
He's fully aware of his divine power. He is literally near starving. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He has the ability to do it. His body was obviously screaming out to do it. Think of it, 40 days without a single bite of food. He was at his weakest point thus far in his humanity. Now, on the surface, the temptation maybe appears to be somewhat innocent, but this wasn't about physical provision. This was a spiritual temptation to sin. Because as the Son of God, Christ had come to do the will of the Father and nothing else. He followed the Father's will in obeying the Spirit's prompting to fast in the wilderness. And now in his hunger, the father had not seen fit to provide him with the needed food. And that was enough reason for Jesus to not provide himself with the physical sustenance that his body so desperately cried out for. Jesus is an obedient son. Jesus' meat and drink were the father's word. He wasn't like the Israelites. They cried out time and time again, why did God lead us out into the wilderness without food? We're miserable. We're starving. Surely uh, Egypt is better than this. And in fact, Jesus uses the word of God to defend against the enemy. Where does he turn? He turns to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. He says, man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 is about the hungry Israelites grumbling against the Lord. And Moses reminds them that God provided them with quail and manna from heaven every single day for 40 years. Every day, 40 years provision directly from heaven. They didn't have to hunt it. They didn't have to gather it. It was there. No lack, no need. And they grumbled. They didn't like it. It got old. It got bland. So the application for Jesus was clear, as we read in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you, uh, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. You see, God's provision of quail and manna proves that his power is not limited to providing ordinary bread. God can support his people with extraordinary means, and he often does. So by quoting Deuteronomy 8, Jesus rocks the devil back on his heels. I will not complain. I will not take my life into my own hands. It is the Father's will to provide for me when he does. I trust him. He will provide. I trust his word. He has given me his word. Now we have to consider our own hearts for a minute. 
you and I aren't tempted to do the supernatural because we cannot. But we are tempted and often succumb to the temptation to provide for our own perceived needs and our own wants rather than trusting in the provision of God. We do what we think we must do in order to get what we think we want. A few examples. You don't have the money to buy the newest thing you want to buy? No problem. Charge it. Electronic gadgets, golf clubs, clothing, accessories, you name it. I want it. I don't have the means to get it. I'll go in debt. Young people, you can't imagine preserving your purity and waiting for marriage to give yourself over to another person. After all, the hormones are there. The feelings are real. God made me this way, so he must want me to have it. Married people, hit a tough spot in your marriage. Can't seem to get on the same page with your spouse. Surely God just wants you to be happy, right? And that lady at work or that guy I always see at the Y when I do my workout, they seem to be pretty flirtatious lately. Maybe I just need to spice things up a little bit and get adventurous. Had a rough day at work or a difficult day at home with the kids? I shouldn't have to dwell on this when I'm relaxing at home. I need to get lost in hours of television and mounds of food and bottles of drink day after day and week after week to numb the reality of life. See, it's all the same. Material possessions, sexual desire, food, alcohol, drugs, you name it. In our deceptive hearts, we will justify our sins. Because after all, You know, me and God, we've got this thing that we we worked out. He understands. You mean he understands that you aren't relying upon him. So instead, you seek to fashion your own life into that which brings you your own desires. That's the great temptation, isn't it? Rather than trusting God, we regularly succumb to the temptation to go beyond the parameters of God's word and God's provision to satisfy our own personal needs or desires. We attempt to help God give us what we think we deserve. But Jesus, on our behalf, resisted that temptation. He worked against the temptation of Satan to supply himself with that which God had not made available. Because like Adam, we so often think we know better We are overreachers. We promote ourselves because we are sure God will not do it for us. We scheme and plan for our well-being, assuming that God does not care for us. Or maybe he just doesn't know our needs and we have to go ahead and meet them for ourselves. We refuse to live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, don't we? But Jesus recognized this reality. Jesus has accomplished this on our behalf. Let's read verses five through eight. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
Now, in one sense, we we have to be certain that we know that Satan was not lying when he implied that he had all the kingdoms of the world to offer to Jesus. Three times in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus calls Satan the prince of the world. Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the God of this age. Under God's sovereignty, he has allowed Satan a temporary authority over the kingdoms of the world, a sort of limited sovereignty to exercise his evil will on the earth. And yet, we recognize that all that Satan does is intended by God to bring about the greater end of his own glory. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. But why the offer? Why would Satan willingly give up his limited ability that he has to corrupt the nations? Why would this be a temptation to Jesus? Well, first, let's look at Satan. Don't forget that he knows exactly what is to come. After all, the curse was placed on him. He shall bruise your head. At this point in the story, for several thousand years, Satan has continued with the promise of God in his mind. There would come a day when he would lose his head. His destruction is inevitable. So perhaps he could thwart the plan of God by getting the Son of God, the one who would be there to crush him, to bow his knee in exchange for all the power of the earth. But why would Jesus be tempted to this? Because he was well aware of what it would take to utter those glorious words, it is finished. The temptation for Jesus was to become the shortcut savior. To bypass the pain and the suffering and the wrath of God. That he might take temporary dominion over the earth here and now. It's Satan's whispers. Forget the cross. Forget the agony and the pain and the torment and the forsaking of your father. It's right here in front of you for the taking. You can have it. It's all yours. Just worship me. So the result would be a temporary political reign, but it would be an exchange for eternal redemptive reign. No atonement, no forgiveness, no righteousness. All of us dead. And so again, Jesus responds using the scriptures. And this time he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus would not break the second commandment. Jesus had no idols in his life. And again, we see Jesus setting himself up as greater than the Israelites, obedient in all the ways that they were not. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses is calling the Israelites to remember the Lord and turn away from their false idols. Idolatry was a sin they were so often prone to succumb, isn't it? And whether we want to admit it or not, we must recognize that the temptation to idolatry is real and evident in in our lives. The temptation to take the easy way The broad and easy road with the wide gate, it's always before us. The way of the cross, picking up our cross and following Jesus in his suffering, 
That's the hard road. That's the narrow road with the narrow gate. Wouldn't you prefer ease and comfort? Wouldn't you prefer a life without struggle, a life without the pain and the ridicule and the persecution and submitting to the authority of God's law? Have you stopped to think about what we've signed up for here? Paul writes to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is that what you want? A true believer says whatever the cost, whatever the pain, whatever the sacrifice, by the grace of God, I will endure it. I will persevere. I will be obedient and faithful to God as I look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of eternity, his obedience far outweighed the suffering of the cross and the weight of God's wrath that he endured. For us, the temptation to take the easy way is present every time we are faced with decisions. The decision to discipline our children, to do our taxes to fill out our timesheets, to turn to our addictions. It's just easier if we set ourselves up for painlessness. Why endure the rigor and the pain? We convince ourselves that we deserve better or that it's just this once. So it's not really that big of a deal. But as God's people... We're not idolaters. We worship the one true and living God and no other. And so the call on our lives is to flee idolatry. And Jesus knew as he countered Satan that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The temptation was to give that up for temporary earthly gain. He was not about to settle for a lesser temporary kingdom on earth when the eternal kingdom of the universe was his for the taking. So it didn't work. So Satan throws his final temptation at Jesus. Look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now remember again, the scriptures tell us that Satan the serpent is the most crafty of any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We see after two temptations that he is assessing the battle and he reconfigures his plans and mounts his third and final attack. This time he seeks to use Jesus' own defense against him. He quotes the scriptures, this time from Psalm 91. 
And as with other, uh, several other psalms, Psalm 91 was a famous wisdom psalm that celebrated God's defense of his faithful people. It's a glorious psalm of God's love and protection for his people, watching over the elect and using his angels for their service. It's a great word of promise from God. You and I are served by the angels of God, that we will persevere in Christ, that we will not give up. So Satan uses this great psalm of promise to tempt Jesus. You say you trust God, don't you? If you're so insistent upon relying upon the scriptures, why don't you show how much trust you really have? Throw yourself down from here. You're the son of God. Surely he will command the angels to come to your rescue. Come on, show us what kind of trust you really have. Imagine the temptation for Jesus. I am the son of God. I do trust the father. How easy it would have been for Jesus to succumb by being deceived to think, I need to prove this. I need to show my authority. I need to show my power. I need to prove that the Father is watching over me and I will do what is necessary to, uh, to make sure that everybody knows. He will see me through. And this is the sort of thing that Jesus dealt with all throughout his ministry. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he heard these very same words from the mockers? And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And in very much the same way, the mockers and the scoffers today will seek to manipulate the word of God and the character of God to prove their point. If your God is so loving and so kind, why is there so much suffering in the world? If there really is a God, why do babies die? Why is genocide committed and wars and famine and rape and child molestation? Why? We've all heard it, haven't we? Assuming they know the truth about God, they use the same words and tactics of their father, the devil. But it's also a game we play, isn't it? When we're falling into temptation, we're so prone to nonsense like, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. He will make it all work out in the end. It's not right, but I don't know what else to do. Surely he's going to work it all out for my good in the end. It's the old Romans eight twenty-eight trick. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that's our free license to do as we please and demand that God makes it all right in the end, right? Of course not. Those who mock the sovereignty of God find themselves in the same boat. If God is sovereign over everything, as you say, then why don't you let your children play in the traffic? What a silly claim. Because I'd rather watch you play in the traffic. (laughs) Look how Jesus responds again in Deuteronomy 6. 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The Israelites constantly railed against God saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And they asked for signs and wonders while amazingly more than any other generation, they were surrounded by the very evidence of God's power and God's kindness and God's sovereignty. Think of it. A people who God released from bondage in the most unlikely of circumstances. A people who saw God part the Red Sea and provide food from heaven and water from a rock. And on and on and on it goes. And yet, what was their response? Complete and total faithlessness. Just give us one more sign. Just give us one more provision and then we'll believe and then we'll trust. Remember Matthew 12, how Jesus responded to the same language? Some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, I will be in the belly of the earth for three days and then I will come out and that will be your sign. But so often it just doesn't seem like enough for us, does it? How often have you prayed, God, just give me a sign. God, please just show me with some kind of something that you're there and you're listening. Is not his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? And the promises of his words, enough of a sign for us. Your sign is that Christ has conquered sin and death and Satan. And God has revealed himself to you in his word. And he has given you the Holy Spirit to walk in the wisdom of application of that word. Walking in obedience to all that he has commanded. A sign? Jesus is clear. No sign will overcome the faithlessness of a sign-seeking heart. And so Jesus responds to Satan, knowing that even the highest and best ends would not justify operating contrary to the will of God. He would wait for God. He would do only what the Father commanded. No more and no less. You are on the dangerous grounds of Satan's temptation when you seek to rationalize your sin by twisting the word of God or attempting to force him to act. Jesus resisted every temptation. How did he do it? What was his primary defense? The word of God. He relied upon the power of God's word to resist every onslaught of temptation. And we, brothers and sisters, cannot expect any less. If you're not steadily taking in the word of God and seeking to meditate on it and apply it to your life, you have no hope of resisting temptation. It won't happen. You have no defense. We must rely upon what God has given us, not signs and wonders, but the Bible. Know it, trust it, apply it to your life. Jesus chose to resist every temptation and live in complete submission to the Father's will in all things. And he knows the Father's will because he has given it to us in his word. So we read lastly, verse 13. 
And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. After three fruitless attempts at causing the Son of God to fall, Satan left him. But Luke records it was only until an opportune time. He fully intends to return again. And so it will be with believers also. Every successful resistance of temptation in our lives, by the grace of God, may very well be followed by a season of quiet. But Satan and his minions have not forgotten. They shall return and we must be ready. We must be, as Jesus was, relying upon the Holy Spirit, filled with the word of God and vigilant to know when temptation is at our door. You see, in our fallen flesh, we are prone to wander and sin. Temptation falls before us and we so often take the bait. We're willing to settle for instant gratification rather than eternal reward. C.S. Lewis has, in my opinion, said it best. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Indeed, we settle for the world when Satan sets the table before us rather than enduring the shame and the struggle of cross-carrying for the joys of heaven. A day at the city dump will suffice. I might find something to enjoy. It's just far too much work to take a free vacation in Hawaii for a week. That's madness. Nobody does that. Nobody rejects what is greatest for something so frivolous, something so weak and powerless. And yet, as Satan sends the buffet before us, we nibble, we bite when we fall into our temptation. And there are some here this morning who know nothing of this fight against temptation because there is no battle. There is no struggle. Not because you have it figured out, but because you have no desire to see the need to walk the difficult road of the Christian life. The life of debauchery has suited you just fine. Perhaps you've convinced yourself you have no need for a Savior. But please hear me, friend. You are deceived by the God of this world. He is at work to devour you. Jesus offers you hope and a reason to live. Jesus offers you infinite joy. Jesus offers you freedom from sin and death and eternal torment. Jesus offers you himself. Jesus withstood the temptation of Satan because you and I cannot. And he applies his resistance to us. The second Adam is the perfect Adam because we are all fallen Adams. 
He died that we might live. He has taken upon himself the wrath of God that is deserved by every single one of us and offers his right standing before the Father so that on the great day of judgment, we need not stand before him in fear, but in confident joy, knowing that if we have repented of our sins and believed in the gospel of Christ, we are his forever. Friends, the devil is out to get you like a roaring lion crouched at the door. Our only hope is Christ. Trust in Christ. Depend on Christ. Look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that... Jesus, the second Adam, is faithful to do all that the first Adam could not. Because we are just like our first parents. In our weakness, in our inability to resist temptation. And yet, because Christ has resisted temptation on our behalf, We can turn to him. We can trust him. We can love him. And we can resist temptation because we walk by the spirit. No longer by the flesh, but by the spirit who helps us, who gives us hope, who gives us a reminder of all that is there for us to enjoy in Christ Jesus. Help us, oh God, help us to fight hard against the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help us to keep our eyes focused on the eternal kingdom instead of bowing our knee to the kingdoms of this world. They are nothing in comparison. There is nothing in this world in comparison to the great riches that await us. Help us, O God, to be faithful, to endure with patience and in our suffering to cry out to you, our great heavenly Father, to carry us along, to keep us, that we not sin. Father, thank you for loving us, loving us to the point of sending your son Jesus to die on the cross and be raised from the dead on our behalf to endure your wrath for us. Lord, you are kind and gracious. Why are any of us guests in the great banquet room of the heavenly courts? None of us deserve it. Before the Holy Spirit changed our hearts, none of us wanted it. But you are so kind and gracious and you love us. And so we can endure day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, resisting temptation because you have put within us a spirit of obedience and truth and love. Lord, fill us with your word. Give us a greater desire for all the wonderful means of grace you've provided for us that we can resist temptation and sin and protect us from evil. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the obedience of Jesus on our behalf that we can look to him and live.
We love you, we praise you, and we thank you and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.